Philippians chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible and would like one, there are some on the table on my back right, your back left. That table back there has some Bibles and you are more than welcome to take one and use it for reference uh, during the service today. Philippians chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 1, and please follow along with me as I read through verse 16. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye, may, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Thank you. You may be seated. Keep your Bibles and please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1. Last week, we laid an important foundation for the book of Corinthians. That foundation was that it is possible to be a believer and still be consumed and controlled by your sin nature. Paul calls this state of living carnality, where though you are in Christ, though you are a believer, your days, your moments, your thoughts, your actions, your intentions are controlled by your flesh, not by the Spirit of God, are controlled by selfishness and pride and arrogance and bitterness instead of by the fruit of the Spirit. While there are many aspects of the Corinthian church that were carnal, as Paul was writing to them, Paul begins his epistle with a stern rebuke for the spiritual division that was among them. We just read in Philippians chapter 2, for our scripture reading. And as we did so, you noticed how many times perhaps Paul mentioned being of one mind, of one accord, that there be no strife, that there be no discord, that there be no division among them. 
Very similar message to what Paul is speaking and preaching here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In a manner of speaking, division in a church is the greatest of all carnalities. While we earnestly defend churches against those sins that we have categorized as very bad, things like immorality and theft and compromise and uh, those sorts of things, we seem to accept division in the church as simply human nature. And so I would say that if we look around at America as a whole, and the church that is in America as a whole, perhaps the greatest evidence of carnality in the church is division in the church. You know, scriptures paint a very clear picture of carnality. Without doubt, the men and women under the sound of my voice will always be different. You and I will always be different. We will have different preferences. We will look different. We will enjoy different amusements and have different talents. The Premans are going on vacation. I don't know all of what they're going to do on their vacation. The Grismores are on vacation right now. I don't know of all of what they're doing on their vacation, but I'd be willing to guess that some of the things the Premans are going to do and the Grismores are doing and some of the things you might do are very different from what I might do during a vacation. Because we're different. There are going to be differences. We are going to have our differences. But, according to the Word of God, we are all commanded to have a unity of mind around the mind of Christ. There is intended to be a unity among born-again believers rooted in Christ. And as I've mentioned, if there were to be one problem in the church at large today, it's that we do not share the mind of Christ. Therefore, we are not unified. Therefore, we are carnal. We are a divided people. The church has divided loyalties. The church is divided in their biblical interpretations. The church is divided in its priorities. The church is divided in its philosophies. But lest we condemn the church at large without starting to look closer, looking inward... I want us to focus on this church today as we think about carnality. We'll look outward a little bit. We'll, we'll focus on some of the broad context. But let's not be so busy looking at how everyone else has things in their lives that are wrong that we forsake our own sin. That we forsake the potential for carnality and division in our own lives. Let's be careful that we don't judge others at the expense of judging ourselves. So as we walk through Paul's rebuke today in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, certainly we can and we should understand the application to the greater body of believers in the Western world. But we must look inward. We must judge ourselves. We read in 1 Corinthians 11 during our Lord's Supper this morning that if we would judge ourselves, then we should judge ourselves lest we be judged. We judge our own hearts and correct our own problems before God has to chasten us and judge us. For our sin. And so the questions to ask this morning are we a divided church? Do we have the mind of Christ? Is there carnality among us? What must we do? And how should we respond? Let's think about those questions as we dive in this morning. I'd like to give you three thoughts this morning. Three thoughts from 1 Corinthians 1 in reference to the dangers of carnal division in the church of God. Three thoughts in reference to the dangers of division in the church of God. And the first thought I'd like to give you this morning is an exhortation. 
the exhortation that Paul gives in verses 10 through 12, be perfectly unified. Be perfectly unified. Look at, with me at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning verse 10. Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Paulus, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Paul begins in verse 10 by beseeching them. This word in the Greek literally means to implore, to appeal, or to urge someone unto a decision. And what is the appeal? What is the beseeching that he's asking? What is he asking them to do? Well, he's asking them to speak the same thing and that there would be no divisions among them. He's imploring them, let there be no divisions among you. Speak the same thing. Be of the same judgment, the same mind. We talked about the word division a little bit last week. In the Greek, it's the word schisma. It's the word from which we get schism. It's the word from which we get schizophrenia. We said last week that they were a schizophrenic church. That they each had their own mind and they didn't have the mind of Christ. That they had different minds. And that one person was saying one thing, one thing, one person was saying another thing. And though they were one body in Christ, their mind was all over the place. Schisma. It speaks of a tear. It speaks of a rending. It speaks of division. It speaks of dissension. And as Paul warns them against this division, he says, let there be no division among you. He contrasts that. And he says, rather, he says in verse 10, be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. The word joined together here is another Greek word. It's the word katartizo. And this word means to mend or to make complete. So can you see the picture that Paul is saying here? He's saying you are divided, you're torn. It's as if you took a piece of cloth and tore it in half. And he says, this is the church. And he says, what, I, what you need to do is you need to be perfectly joined together. You need to be mended. You need to be sewn together. You need to be attached. You need to be the same piece of cloth. You need to be joined together. And there are two elements of unity, two elements of this joining that Paul speaks of here. He speaks of the unity of mind and unity of judgment. That's what he says here in verse 10. Be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Unity of mind. That we would all be unified in our way of thinking, our priorities, our perspectives, our loyalties, our spiritual goals. That our mind, our way of thinking would be the same. And then he says of judgment. This word judgment is the word in the Greek that means knowledge. That we would be unified in our understanding. Not just in what we think, but in how we discern. In our interpretation of God's Word. In our knowledge. In our understanding of what God is doing. Paul says, be unified in mind and in understanding. In these two ways, Paul says, the torn pieces of the church can again be mended into one complete garment the torn shreds that was the Corinthian church can become one once again. The schizophrenic mind can become one mind again. In verse 11, Paul states that it was the house of Chloe that had reported the contentions in this church. When the house of Chloe reported the state of the church, Paul said that they used the word that there was strife in the church. 
We saw this word strife in the Philippians 2 passage that we read this morning for our Scripture reading. It's the word used in Romans one twenty nine when Paul is describing unbelievers and he describes them as being filled with all unrighteousness and fornication and wickedness and covetousness and maliciousness full of envy, murder, debate. There's the same word in the Greek. Debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers. It's the same word that Paul used in Romans chapter 13, verse 13, when he warns us, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy. There's that word strife. This was a serious word. When Chloe, or the house of Chloe, came and told Paul, there is strife in this church, the house of Chloe was using a word that indicated Deep, carnal, wicked, bickering and debate and division. This is not just we disagree over some things and there's some squabbles. This is really serious. And this word is used very seriously in the Scriptures. Tremendous internal division, argument, dissension, people breaking into factions, warring against one another, taking sides and finding others to take sides with you. Someone would come into the church and they'd say, whose side are you on? And they'd immediately be trying to pull people one way or another. I remember back in college, we would have various uh, groups that you could be involved in. And there was a day where we'd have an expo. And we would be working on trying to get people to join our various groups, clubs, those sorts of things, activities. And you'd pull out all the stops. Right? All of these freshmen come in and you want them to be a part of your thing and, and you've got food there and you've got prizes and you've got anything you can to get people to come over to you and you're fighting against that table and that table and that table and you want them to come to your table. Don't go over to them, come to us. And you're bribing them and you're, it's kind of the same picture here. That the factions were so strongly against one another that we were dividing ourselves one against another. So this carnality in the church manifested in disunity, rooted in disunity, strife, debate, argument. You know, the old adage goes, it takes two to fight. By an overwhelming majority, when there's contention and strife that arises in our lives, it's because both parties are proud and selfish and unwilling to yield their way. These circumstances reflect ungodliness on both sides and both of them are exhibiting carnality. We know this generally. The Scriptures tell us only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. But you know, it isn't always this way, is it? Argument and division isn't necessarily always a two-way street. Paul wants unity in this church, the church of Corinth. But he doesn't want Simply any form of unity. It has to be the right type of unity. It needs to be proper unity. Let me illustrate. Let's say my wife and I go home and there's a banana sitting on the table. And we look at that banana and my wife says, that banana is yellow. And I say, no, it's not. That banana is passion pink. And she looks at the banana and it's clearly a yellow banana. Bananas are yellow. Unless you buy them early, then it's, then they're green or whatever the case may be. But it's a yellow banana. And I say, no, 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 it's passion pink. Now, we, we talked about, uh, we had an illustration similar to this a little while back, but we have a different emphasis in this illustration. 
Now, my wife has two options now. My wife could look at me and say, no, the banana is yellow. And we could have disunity in our understanding of the color of this banana. Or my wife could say, you know what, I really want to be unified with my husband. So I'm just going to say, you're right. It's passion pink. And from now on, that banana is passion pink. She could do that. But regardless of how often she says the banana is passion pink, or regardless of how willing she is to align with me that the banana is passion pink, it doesn't change the fact that the banana is yellow. And though now my wife and I are unified, we're unified in error. We're unified in something that is false. And see, God doesn't just want unity in the church. He wants proper unity. He doesn't want the entire church to be saying that the banana is passion pink. He wants the entire church to be saying the banana is yellow. Silly illustration, but do you get where I'm going with it? It's important to recognize the conditions that tear and mend us as believers, as a church. The conditions of carnality and the elements that would that would tear and mend. The, the different priorities, the different understandings. But we don't just need unity in the church. We need unity under the banner of truth. We need proper unity. I agree, it's often said, that the American church lacks unity. It needs unity. The American church is divided. This division is manifest with carnality. But let me state also that the manner in which the unity is found is of utmost importance. Improper unity is just as sinful and just as wicked as division. So we as a church must not seek unity among ourselves or among the broader church at large at the expense of doctrine or at the expense of practice. We must not seek unity by compromising what the Word of God says in order to get unity. And see, that's what, by and large, when people speak of unity, that's what they want. By and large, when people speak of wanting unity in the church, they want everyone to do what they think is right. They want everyone to do what they think is best. You know, the city of Buffalo has a tremendous, is a tremendous example of this problem. Among any city I've ever been in or ever seen, Buffalo works hard at having unity among the community churches. There are community hymn sings at the nursing home. There's a community worship service at Easter. Each year, that worship service is hosted by a different church in the area. Love, Inc. is an interdenominational help organization in town that seeks to utilize all the churches in the area to serve the community. There's many interdenominational community church events in this city. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but Legacy Baptist Church has never been to any of those. You've never seen a flyer on the back bulletin board announcing when one of those is coming up. So maybe you didn't know that there were interdenominational things in Buffalo. It happens all the time. I get calls all the time from pastors saying, hey, we're inviting you to this event. The churches are all coming together for this event. It happens all the time. But we don't go to them. See, the pastors and the churches in this area are seeking unity. But if we were to come together with those churches, we'd be coming together with churches that are in error. 
we'd be unifying with churches that have women pastors, such as Buffalo Covenant and the Presbyterian Church in town. Scriptures clearly state that women are not to be pastors in the church. We'd be coming together with churches that believe in contemporary sign gifts, such as the Assemblies of God and Spirit of Joy and others. We believe that those sign gifts were temporary, that they've passed away. There are churches that don't preach the gospel at all. I have never knocked on a door and spoken to someone who attends St. John Lutheran or Zion Lutheran who understands the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe they're out there, but I have not found one yet. I have not knocked on one door yet where a person that has attended one of those two churches understands the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'd be coming together with them. We'd be coming together with St. Francis Xavier, which believes that they should pray to Mary, that she's a co-redemptress. That's idolatry. We can't do that. See, that's, that's the banner of unity. But it's, it would be us coming together and saying, you know what? It's okay that the banana is said to be passion pink. We're just gonna, we're just gonna let all of those things slide under the bridge for the sake of unity. We can't do that. It has to be proper unity. We would be foolish to give in to these false doctrines for the sake of unity. What they're asking us to do is overlook blatant sin, blatant heresy for the sake of unity, and that's unbiblical. That is sinful. That is not what Paul is teaching here. He is not teaching unity at the expense of doctrine. He is not teaching unity at the expense of truth. He is teaching unity in Christ. Unity must be gained through proper doctrine, not at the expense of doctrine. Unity must be gained through proper spiritual goals, understanding, and direction, not at the expense of spiritual goals, understanding, and direction. In much the same way, in religious circles, one party can relent for the sake of unity, but never have true unity because they've never been convinced. They've only given in. So you say, Pastor, this is pretty depressing. What's the solution? Can there be unity? Can there? Is it possible to have unity among God's people? There are born-again believers in the churches in this area. I've met many of them. They're there. I would be willing to believe that probably every single church in this town has a remnant of believers in it. Can there ever be unity? Well, yes. But only as the church yields any personal pride and rests entirely upon the Word of God alone. And as we do so, we'll find the mind of Christ. And as we find the mind of Christ, there will be unity in the mind of Christ. Unity in Christ. Unity in truth. Paul says, be perfectly unified. Second point, verses 13-17 Be perfectly unified under the mind of Christ. We've mentioned it already. Let's um, develop this point together. Paul uh, continues in verse 13, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the house of Stephanus, beside I know not whether I baptized any other, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Paul asks at the beginning of verse 13, is Christ divided? Whenever you see division in the church, small or great, this question should come to your mind. Is Christ divided? 
Is Christ divided? If this church, Legacy Baptist Church, were to come into some great contention over doctrine, and there were two sides of the issue fighting over doctrine, the question you should ask is, is Christ divided? Well, the answer is no. Christ is not divided. What that means is that somebody or both sides are wrong. There is truth. They're not both right when you're on two sides of a doctrinal issue. When you see churches and communities like this community where there's so much division, where there's so many denominations, where there's so many people going in so many different directions and there's so much disagreement, the question you should ask is, is Christ divided? The answer is no. That means that somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Or that everyone's wrong because nobody is obeying the Scriptures. But the fact of the matter is, there is truth to be found. There is absolute truth to be found. And Christ is not divided. And what needs to be found is the mind of Christ. Paul goes on here. He says, Paul didn't die for you. You weren't baptized in the name of Paul. There's one God. There's one Savior. There's one Redeemer. There's one King. So why in the world are you saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas? Why was this Corinthian church dividing into factions, claiming these various religious leaders instead of all being unified under Christ. We don't draw lines of loyalty around theologians, or around preachers, or around apostles, or books, or denominations, or circles, or associations, or anything of the sort. There is one Christ, therefore there is one standard by which any man is judged regarding truth and error, and that is Jesus Christ Himself. He continues this in verses 14-17. through thanking the Lord that He had not baptized many of them, lest they should say that He was baptizing in His own name and not in Christ's name. He said in verse 17 again, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the Gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. We follow after the mind of Christ, and that solves the problem for many differences in opinions. However, you know, there's always been a real frustration to me. I look around at the world at the churches and the theologians. And there's theologians I disagree with. And yet, I know they love God. We're on two sides of an issue. I believe I'm right and they're wrong. They believe they're right and I'm wrong. But you know, we both love the Lord. And so these things get more complicated. What happens when we come to these problems? Why isn't there unity? Well, there's pride somewhere in these disagreements. At some point, somebody, either through ignorance or through pride, believed something about Scripture and went on a path and they're either still believing it or they've realized that they're wrong but they don't want to admit they're wrong so they continue on that path. And so over time, these various factions of the church have divided and men in their pride have refused to repent and correct themselves. And so they've continued in their error and they've taught other men their error. And so this error has grown and multiplied and so it's taken on a life of its own. And whereas even if a man did want to recant and say, no, I was wrong, by the point where he wants to do so, the error has taken on a life in and of itself and there are more people consumed in that error. 
And this is the process by which false doctrine is created. This is the process by which um, false doctrine is perpetuated. This is the process by which cults are formed. Because people have an idea and it's wrong. And either through ignorance or pride, they espouse these wrong ideas. So, pastor, is there a solution? Yes. We get into this book. We figure out what this book has to say. We understand it. We seek and study and learn and compare Scripture with Scripture until we come up with a coherent biblical worldview and a coherent biblical understanding of the Word of God. And we do our best as the Holy Spirit leads and guides to be right. And when we find out we're wrong, we correct ourselves. We tell people we're wrong. We get it right. And we move on. And that is the process by which the church could become unified under the mind of Christ. Christ is not divided. Regardless of how people misinterpret the Word of God, truth is truth. Truth is not open for debate. Truth is not open for reinterpretation. And on the day that we stand before God to be judged for our works, which the Scriptures tell us we all will, He will not judge us based upon our interpretation of the Word of God. Nor will He judge us based upon our good intentions. He will judge us based upon the revealed truth of God's Word regardless of what we did with it in this life. So we all strive to have the mind of Christ. A mind that sets aside personal loyalties, personal preferences, personal experiences, personal biases to pursue that which is of God exclusively. And on the authority of God's Word, I can assure you that if every Christian, every man, every woman, and every child determined to seek the mind of Christ through the truth of God's Word, not only would it be found, but there would be spiritual unity. And on the authority of God's Word, I can assure you that as a local church, we can and will maintain unity as we each lay aside our pride and selfishness and desire to pursue our own way and simply look at what the Word of God has to say. And as we... Excuse me, as we pursue the Word of God, we will find unity in the mind of Christ. Does that mean we'll agree on everything? Not necessarily. Does that mean we'll all become little clones of one another? Certainly not. But we will find the mind of Christ and we will be unified. Be perfectly unified, Paul says. Be perfectly unified under the mind of Christ, Paul says. Third and finally, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 2 verse 16 through the end of chapter 2 is somewhat of a side note, a bit of a parenthetical if you will. And Paul takes that time and it's very important, um, but he uses those um, paragraphs of our Bible to highlight and to emphasize some elements of wisdom of this world, his own authority as an apostle, and as a minister, the methods he used to ensure that the Corinthian believers would not be forming the mind of Paul, but the mind of Christ. And he takes some time forming some of these themes. And he kind of gets back to his rebuke from chapter 1, verse 17, in chapter 3, verse 1, through verse 7. Notice what he says with me in verse 1 of chapter 3. 
And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now, we'll come back to chapter 3 a few weeks down the road. I'm going to put some points together today. Then we'll jump back next week to chapter 1, verse 18 and following. And then uh, three weeks later or so, we'll be back in chapter 3. But the, the logical train of thought that Paul is following really does jump from chapter 1, verse 17 to chapter 3, verse 1. And what he's saying in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 is basically this. Look, Corinthian church, it's time to grow up. It is time to grow up. Paul tells the church in chapter 3, verse 1, that when he first began to teach them in the faith, he could not speak unto them as spiritual men, but rather as carnal men, as though they were babes, babies, children in Christ. Now, as we think about this, this makes sense, right? When a person is just saved, we do not expect them to understand everything about the Bible. We do not expect them to have a complete grasp on doctrine. We do not even expect that they would fully realize all of the elements of their life that are wrong. All of those elements of their life that are sinful that they need to take care of biblically. Some people, when they get saved, have a very good understanding of what God expects. Maybe they've been in church all their lives, but they've never been saved. Maybe they have read the Bible, but they've never accepted the God of the Bible and His Son, Jesus Christ. Whatever the case may be, there are some people that know exactly what they need to do. There are others that have never heard the Gospel, that don't know anything about the Bible. And when they get saved, there's a lot of learning that needs to happen. There's a lot of growing. They, they don't even know the first thing about being a Christian. And Paul describes the Corinthian church as those types of believers. When they got saved, they were babes in Christ. They had no concept. They had been steeped in all of the, the pagan uh, religion of Greece. All of the pantheistic gods and those and the philosophies of Aristotle and, and uh, the, the great philosophers of, of the Greek uh, golden era. And so they had no concept. Paul says, I couldn't speak unto you as spiritual. I had to speak unto you as carnal, as babes in Christ. As we think about this baby illustration, I think about my own daughters. You know, when my daughters were born, we didn't put them in their little crib, and I didn't start immediately speaking to them and expecting them to understand me. Now, I did plenty of talking to them, but I had no concept. I, I didn't expect them to understand me. They don't know English. In just the same way, they're not mature yet. I, I didn't go up to one of my daughters and say, Hey, Aletheia. Now that you're finally a part of this family, would you go wash the dishes? Well, she's not going to understand what I'm saying, nor is she capable, mature enough, to do those things. Paul said, when you were just born, when you were a babe in Christ, when you were just saved, I didn't expect you to understand all of the spiritual things I was saying. And so I brought it down to a, a physical level, a carnal level. I had to speak to you on a carnal level. They needed time to grow. They needed time to develop. They needed time to learn. They needed time to mature. 
Paul then states, following this baby analogy, he says in verse 2, I fed you with milk and not with meat. He's given them the basics of God's Word. He had to start at the very beginning and work them up in their understanding of God's Word. They couldn't understand the deep and heavy concepts. They couldn't understand the meat. They didn't have teeth to chew with yet, if we follow the analogy through. So he wasn't about to give them the meat of God's Word. This is not expected among new believers. Not all new believers can handle the meat of God's Word right away. Now, we all mature at different rates in the faith. But notice the end of verse 2. He says, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. Some three or four years after Paul established the church in Corinth and had diligently taught them from the Word of God, they still were not able to handle the heavy matters. They were still stuck trying to deal with the basics of God's Word. Trying to deal with the basics of truth, of unity, of, of obeying the Word of God as it's stated, of finding the mind of Christ and not dividing themselves into carnal factions. They were immature still. Why? Because they were carnal. Because they weren't seeking the truth of God's Word, they were seeking to justify their own ideas. The church was filled with envy, with strife, with division. And these sins were keeping these believers in infancy. These sins were denying them the ability to grow spiritually. So they're living just like any other unbeliever. There's no difference. You couldn't tell the difference between a believer and an unbeliever in the church of Corinth because they had so much carnality in their lives and in the church that they refused to get rid of. Paul concludes his thought in verses 4-7, through speaking specifically of this dichotomy again. He says, Paul and Apollos, they're just ministers. And he encourages them again to recognize the mind of Christ. He says, I planted, Apollos is watered, but God has given the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. It's about God. It's not about the minister. Now, carnality is very possible in the lives of believers. And carnality stunts our spiritual growth. Sin in one's life, left unconfessed and unrepented, keeps you from becoming a mature believer. Those pet sins that you might have, that pride that you hold on to and refuse to let go, that selfishness that you just will not give up, those movies that you've got in your house that you know there's nothing righteous in them at all, and yet you watch them, you enjoy them, you, you keep them anyway. That music that you know dishonors God in every way, and yet that music is still on your shelf and still getting into the, your ears. Those thoughts that you have, the things that you say, the places that you go, those, the, the laziness that you have even, those uh, elements of intemperance, those elements of bitterness, those elements of lack of love, of lack of joy, those, those things in our lives that we know are sin. Paul points these things out to the Corinthians and he says, it's time to grow up. It's time to get over these things. It's time to start maturing in Christ. One of my greatest prayers for this church is that we will find unity through the mind of Christ. When we share the mind of Christ, there will be prosperity, there will be fellowship, there will be joy, there will be unity, but the mind of Christ is not open to interpretation, folks. 
What it is to have the mind of Christ is not open to interpretation. The mind of Christ is not about what I think God wants or what I feel God wants or what I want. The mind of Christ is about what God's Word says God wants. The mind of Christ is what we read in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. The mind of Christ is what we read every time we open this book. When we open this book, we are opening the mind of God. He had this book written for our learning. The only way we will grow and become what God wants us to become, the only way this church will become what God wants this church to become, is when we put aside what we want and what we think or what we feel and wholly devote ourselves to God's Word and God's will by wholly devoting ourselves to the mind of Christ. Now, your pastor cannot force you to have the mind of Christ any more than I can take my thoughts and define what the mind of Christ is. The Word of God defines the mind of Christ. The Bible defines the mind of Christ. And the Holy Spirit Spirit works within you to form the mind of Christ in you. But I know that there are men and women under the sound of my voice that are devoted to the things of this world above the things of God. I know it. I know that there are men and women listening who have sacrificed the mind of Christ for convenience, or for happiness, or for habits, or for pursuits of your own pleasure. On the authority of God's Word this morning, I tell you that it's time to grow up. It's time to quit being children that need to be fed again and again and again by the milk of God's Word. It's time to get over the basic concepts of what it means to be a Christian, and it's time to dig deep, and it's time to grow some teeth and get some meat. It was not that long ago that young men in this country and around the world were expected to grow up at very young ages. It was not that long ago that age, at age 16, a young man was beginning to think about taking a wife and building a home and having a life, getting a career, whatever the case may be, establishing a life for him and his family. In Western civilization today, the secular world counts it a great feat if a 16-year-old has enough maturity to stay away from drugs and alcohol and premarital sex. They think it's a great feat if a guy can be out of his parents' basement by 25. And as we think about the direction our culture is going, it's really quite disappointing, isn't it, sometimes? To see men in their middle ages who have never grown up, who have never gotten away from living off of the generosity of friends and family, who have never gotten out and started a life of their own, who have never taken responsibility for their own actions. It's disappointing to see a culture that expects youth to live wild and to take no responsibility for their actions. We look at these things and it's not even just disappointing. Sometimes it can be pretty disgusting, isn't it? Well, you know what else is kind of disgusting? It's when we think about the fact that some of us in this room have been saved for 5, 10, 15, 20 plus years and we're still holding on to all those childish things of the world. It's disappointing, isn't it? We're still clinging to the blanket and pacifiers of personal pleasures in our lives 
when there's an eternity to live for, when there's men and women out there dying and going to hell. We suffice ourselves to live in the world's basement, convinced that our Christian liberty gives us license to be lazy, ignorant, and apathetic to the things of God, to pursue that which secures the contentment of our base nature through the lust of the eyes, uh, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, instead of focusing on God. We convince ourselves that we're okay because we're at least doing better than the next door neighbor. Or we're at least doing better than the guy across the street. Or we're at least doing better than the people that we read about on the news every day. When in reality, we're still not taking responsibility for ourselves, getting over those things that the Scriptures tell us we need to, and getting busy serving God with our lives. What Paul was telling the Corinthian church is this. Church, there's carnality, there's envy, there's strife, there's division, and there is greater sin that he'll enumerate in chapters 5, 6, 7. Fornication in the church. Tremendous sins that he'll, he'll speak of in the church. And he says, look church, it's time for you to grow up. Three, four years ago, I was among you and I was giving you the milk of the Word because you couldn't handle anything deep anything strong, anything important. And here we are, three or four years later, I've spent years teaching you. Apollos has been in the church teaching you. And you still haven't grown up yet. You're still dealing with these simple issues that the Word of God states so clearly that we need to get taken care of. It's time to grow up. Now, the decision to grow up, as I mentioned, is not your pastor's. I cannot put on the back bulletin board that it's grow up month. And that by the end of the month, we're all going to be mature. And sign up your name, and if you sign up your name on the sheet, then, then you're going to grow up. That's not how this works. Pastor can't put together a grow up program except to teach the Word of God and to ask you and to beg you and to compel you to obey it. The decision is yours. Now, I have not mentioned part... I have not gotten too specific this morning. But I've mentioned some things. Those things in our culture that are the big hindrances, the ways in which Christian culture has capitulated to the world, our entertainment being one of the big ones, our priorities being another big one. Those are ways in which we've allowed the world to affect the church. If the Holy Spirit has convicted you today, your pastor can't stand between you and God. You don't confess your sin to me. You confess it to God. It's not the conviction of your pastor that rests upon your heart. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit that rests upon your heart. And so, may I encourage you, as the Holy Spirit has dealt with you this morning, you know what decisions you need to make to grow up spiritually. My question to you this morning as we think about those elements that we asked at the beginning is, will you? What decisions will you make? As a church, do we have the mind of Christ? Are there elements of your life that are withholding from you the mind of Christ? Are there things in our church that are withholding from us the mind of Christ? Are we divided in a manner of speaking? Are we carnal? Is there carnality among us? And my final question that I asked at the beginning is, how are we going to respond? May I encourage you this morning to respond by judging yourself 
by getting those things right with God, by confessing and forsaking your sin, by growing up, by determining that you are going to set those things aside so that you can follow the mind of Christ.